grateful for uh, the many people in this church community who are connectors, people who build bridges uh, between other people. One of those uh, people in our community is Rana Chisholm. And uh, a little over a year ago, uh, when we were going through some of the changes as a church community, and my, my title in particular changed uh, to Pastor of Spiritual Formation, and began to look around, who else has this title? This is John Mean. <laughs> who could I talk to? And uh, so chatting with Ron, I says, I know this wonderful pastor of spiritual formation that I just met. Is this at a conference or something? Uh, not too long ago, her name is Julie Barrios, and she's the pastor of spiritual formation at a church in San Francisco that has some commonality with artisans' culture, and I think you guys really connect well. And so being that there's some distance there, I didn't have it in the budget to quite fly down and spend time with Julie, but we had a Skype call. And uh, so we spent about an hour uh, early on, and I asked, what does pastor spiritual formation do? And uh, she gave some really great answers, and so I'm still stumbling along and learning uh, as we go here. But also turns out Julie is a, a gifted communicator, speaker, preacher, teacher, spiritual director, uh, consultant, uh, sort of a business consultant. She does all kinds of different things, wears many hats. And uh, so it was, it was a privilege to meet her, uh, even in that uh, small window of time and opportunity. So, the speaking gifts, teaching gifts, are those with which she is going to uh, share with us this morning. So we're privileged to have arranged the time for her to come up and uh, to be with us in this context. So we're delighted that you're here with us, Julie. And um, also happens that we're beginning a brand new teaching series today. So as we were looking at different dates, we're like, how would you feel about kind of kicking off our first John series? And she was like, willing to roll with it. So. So, like, I'm going to stop saying that word, but uh, she's here, and she's going to share with us. So, would you come? I'd like to offer a prayer for you. And, uh, Let's pray. God, I thank you for friendship and connections. Thank you for your kingdom that unites uh, in spite of our diversity. And thank you for... Uh, bringing Julie to us, I pray that your spirit would rest on her, that you would enable her uh, by, uh, mind, body, and spirit to communicate that which you've given her to, to share with us. May the good news sound through her, and you comfort her and embolden her as she shares with us. Give her your, your eyes, your ears, and your imagination, your creativity. Bless her and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Nelson, and thank you all for having me here. Uh, I, I, thankfully, I, it was amazing the way that God orchestrated it. I, I've actually been in the area for about two weeks, lots of time to relax and enjoy the beauty of the space. And I love San Francisco, but Vancouver is a really beautiful, amazing place. So um, I'm so grateful that you all shared it with me for the last two weeks. And um, gosh, they asked me if I would open up their first John. And I, and I said yes without even looking at the text. And then I look at the text and realize they basically said, would you like hit a fastball as fast as we can draw? Because the, the intro to First John is such a metaphysical, difficult text to draw application out of. So I want you guys to know I've been working really hard. <laughs> um, I've been sitting with this for a long time. and. Um, and some great conversation partners along the way that, that have really helped me a lot. Um, and so I, I hope that you can, you can experience 
uh, would be today the same kind of, wow, um, vulnerability and receptivity that uh, sitting with this text has done for me in the last few weeks. So uh, let's uh, slowly and prayerfully receive this text. I'm going to read it out loud. If you would like to follow along, you may. But if you do best just listening, then just listen. Uh, now's not the time to be a good student. Now's the time to be a good, a good relater. So uh, let's receive. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And this life was made manifested. And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, these things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. Lord, you have set a trajectory for what this, this conversation is about today. And the trajectory is the creation of joy. So Lord, we ask that your spirit be at work in me and in everyone here, creating joy, giving us that experience that John seems to have so deeply embodied, that it is his joy to pass it forward. Lord, help us receive it, that we might pass it on as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So John was writing this at the time when we were in the middle of the Gnostic controversies, and so what this means is that there was a lot of, of the, the Greek philosophy of the day, Platonism, was really sort of the standard of how people understood the world. And that meant that there was this strong division between the physical world and then this ideal logical world. The land of the forms, the logos, and what the Greeks meant by that was that it just, they just saw, they, they seemed to think it was incompatible, okay? And so the heresies of the early church tended to lean either in one direction or another. Either it was that Jesus was really God, but not really a man, because after all, man are, you know, we're kind of gross, right? So, why, so it must be that Jesus is God. And then the opposite was, no, Jesus was really a man. He was, you know, really in the flesh, really there, but definitely couldn't be God because, you know, after all, you know, humans were, were kind of gross, right? So that couldn't be compatible. And so what John is doing right off the get-go here is he is drawing these two concepts together. And he's, they're like vibrating against each other. It's like they go back and forth, back and forth. So you kind of can't help, but when you're trying to understand First John 1, without going back to the Gospel of John and the way he enters the Gospel of John, because it's kind of like a bit of a decryption tool for how we understand what John's doing in 1 John. Okay, so let's read that just for a moment. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then it goes on into verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, without getting too deep into John 1, what I will say is this, is that they kind of mirror each other. It starts with this thing that seems like an abstraction, the logos, the word. This thing that is, in, in, Greek, in the Greek mind, would have been this sort of rule, the logic that governs all of creation. But then John kind of turns it on its head, and he does that in 1 John as well, where he's saying, it's kind of like that, but this thing that you have experienced being revealed in nature, in creation, it's stuff that you've seen. You've seen it, you've looked upon it, you've touched it, and then we've proclaimed it. And then it becomes further manifested into the person of Jesus Christ. So two revelations going on right now. First, the declaration of nature, then the revelation of the person of Christ. So one of the things that you can't miss here is that John is talking about real stuff. When you read the text, it sounds like it's really abstract, but he keeps bringing us back to this thing that seems abstract is something that's very, very real. It's something you've observed before. Maybe you don't even know it. You're not even conscious of it, but it's been there all along. So this reality undergirds all of the instruction that's coming as you guys continue through uh, first John in this series. Uh, it, it's uh, keep this in the back of your mind that none of the things John says in, in, as the letter continues contradict any of these observations that he starts at the beginning because John really believes that worldview matters. It actually matters to our lives. So, man, I will take the opportunity as a, as a U.S. American to say a part of the big problem that we are having right now in the United States is because we do not have coherent political worldview. Um, on the right or the left. It's simply incoherent. And so what we've adopted is the pop version of that. The pop version of it seems to make sense because we've actually lived in, to some degree, a political Gnostic heresy for a long time. We had a lot of ideas that were virtually toothless when it came to, came to being able to, to take a bite out of any of the real problems that we had. And so we could sort of ignore them because they didn't fit. Now, fast forward you know, decades and decades, uh, now we're in a, in a situation where people have been so fed up with the ideas that seem to, seem to have no actual flesh to them, that now it's all flesh, but it seems like a, a, a very mindless, brainless sort of way of going about, going about things. And so um, let that serve as a warning. <laughs> Worldview really does matter. 
and its application matters. It has to get real. And if it doesn't get real and it can't create real results, then, then we have to actually consider whether, whether we've got it right or not. And so uh, I, I'm living this out kind of day to day in San Francisco. These are common topics of conversation. And actually, since I've been in Canada the last two weeks, I can't count how many times people want to talk to me about American politics, so it's really it's interesting. Um, so, so John is setting us up. He's setting us up well. And uh, he's trying to show us that there, there is something that undergirds what he's about to say. And, uh, and he does that in his gospel, and he does that in his letters, too. And I want you to remember who this guy is. He's also the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation. So John is able to get as abstract as he is, as a communicator, as a theologian, because he is so grounded in this very earthy, very real uh, metaphysic. So if you think those things don't totally make sense, then you might be a little bit too Greek. Because they do. In Christianity, these things work together. So, uh, John continually reminds us that uh, in, in, in this, these first few verses of, of 1 John, that we're referring to things that we've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, we've touched. Um, and it seems to be that he thinks this is a pervasive experience. Uh, he, he goes back and forth between referring to the we, you, we, you, and, and then seems to be inclusive in these we's and in these you's really often. So these pronouns are kind of, they're kind of vibrating against each other too because he seems to think that, uh, that maybe you know something that I might know, not know you know. Uh, maybe you, you have an awareness of this, uh, this word of life as revealed to you through living, simply living, looking upon, seeing and touching, that maybe you don't know you know, and maybe I don't know you know. So there's this back and forth between this we and this you. And... Uh, this logic becomes apparent to us as we observe. Because nature and this concrete reality that we're in has a declarative nature to it. So you see in scripture, all of, all of creation waits and groans. And that nature declares the glory of God. That there's something about observing it. And there's something about beholding it that gives us the suspicion of something. And John's observing that, that nature is actually the model for what prayer is. I'm going to get more into that in a minute. Um, but uh, what is... The way I first learned this was uh, as a tiny kid, I was probably about four, and I was little enough that as I think of this memory, the physical memory I have associated with it is that my legs dangled from my car seat. Um, 
I was in the car with my mom, and could you pass me my water? Thank you. Uh, I was in the car with my mom, and I, I say in my tiny little four-year-old voice, Mom, do trees pray? And she thought for a second, and she said, and in, by the way, at this time my mom's a pretty young Christian who's in her mid-twenties, who um, didn't really go to church or anything like that, but had this big sense of wanting to follow Jesus. So I said, Mom, do trees pray? Uh, and she thinks about it for a second, and she says, well, yeah, they pray. And uh, and then, of course, I mean, four-year-old, I saw lots of little ones around here, so you're probably used to what the question that came next. Well, how do they pray? Is my next question. And so, my mom thinks about it again for a second, and says, well, when the wind blows, they shake their branches and they wiggle their leaves. And I think, oh, yep, got it. <laughs> now, this, I didn't realize this at the time. Of course, I was four, so I didn't really reflect on my thoughts at a four-year-old. But I was asking some pretty deep questions. But this actually formed my understanding of prayer. That kind of propelled me toward the rest of my life. I thought that, well, everything must pray then, right? And, uh, and it wasn't until I was in grad school and, and was reading uh, Thomas Merton to, to read a quote by him that, that talks about how the trees pray and how the trees are actually declaring this glory simply by being themselves. There's something about that. So before you think that, that, this, that Merton might be taking this too far, um, See that Jesus actually said very similar things. So we explore uh, first the experience of uh, the revelation of God through nature, but when we see it, for some reason, we tend to think that it's other to us, that trees pray naturally. Uh, but I probably need to work harder at it. Okay, um, that uh, most most things in nature tend to have rhythms and cycles. But I probably need to be productive all the time. Uh, so we look at nature and it tells us something. But why is it that we humans tend to think it doesn't apply to us? And Herein lies one of the reasons why God has to become incarnate. Because Jesus has to reveal to us what it looks like to be a human that functions according to a natural order. He helps us see how we fit into this. So C.S. Lewis calls this the grand miracle. The grand miracle is the incarnation. When C.S. Lewis talks about this, he talks about how this is the ultimate revelation of how the greater, the more powerful, serves the weaker. 
and that this is the way of nature and the way it ought to be. Uh, here's a quote from him. In this descent and reascent, everyone will recognize a familial, a familiar pattern, a thing written all over the world. It is the pattern of all vegetable life. It must belittle itself into something hard, small, and death-like. It must fall into the ground. Thence the new life reascends. It is the pattern of all animal generation, too. There is descent from the full and perfect organisms into the spermatozoon and ovum, and in the dark womb, a life at first inferior in kind to that of the species which is being reproduced. Then, the slow ascent to the perfect embryo, to the living, conscious baby, and finally to the adult. So it is also in our moral and emotional life. The first innocent and spontaneous desires have to submit to the death-like process of control or total denial. But from that, there is a reascent to fully formed character in which the strength of the original material all operates, but in a new way. Death and rebirth, go down to go up. It is a key principle through this bottleneck, this belittlement. The high road nearly always lies. The doctrine of the incarnation, if accepted, puts this principle even more emphatically at the center. The pattern is there in nature because it was first there in God. All the instances of it, which I have mentioned, turn out to be but transpositions of the divine theme into a minor key. I am not now referring simply to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, the total pattern of which they are only turning, the turning point is the real death and rebirth. For certainly, no seed ever fell from so fair a tree into so dark and cold a soil as would furnish more than a faint analogy to this huge descent and reascension in which God dredged the salt and oozy bottom of creation. Can you hear him echoing 1 John 1 here? This is the great miracle, the bringing together of these two things that seem incompatible. Now here's the thing, it seems like most of creation gets this, and human beings are the unique weirdos of creation. <laughs> We're the ones who have trouble understanding this and have trouble knowing what it looks like. And even as I'm talking about it now, I bet 100% of us are tempted to think that because we've learned this, it somehow exempts us from going through the process in ways that we wouldn't prefer. And we're still shocked. I'm still shocked at times when I'm taken down that road. Jesus modeled for us that walking that road needs to be a suffering servant, a vulnerable God. 
that cruciformity is this pattern that we are to step into. And Jesus points us back to nature because even when the disciples were trying to figure out who he was, they wanted an emperor. They wanted empire. But instead, he tells us and reminds us that this way of nature, which we've seen over and over again, is the way of humanity too. That unless a kernel of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it stays alone and remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. The way of nature is abundant. It is not by the least scarce, but the only catches you've got to die. He gives us a, a similar example, uh, giving us the example of a woman giving birth in John 16. Also, interesting to note how much John, John is the person who captures some of these things with Jesus in his Gospels. I think John gets this new faith. In John 16, 21, he said, Jesus says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Again, the pattern we see as revealed to us in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, that starts with this descent but ends in joy. And here's the scary part that we don't want, is it doesn't feel good. We're going to want to resist it. You can't understand your way through this. So Christians aren't the only people who have observed this. Now this is something I find incredibly interesting. That in the sciences, many, many have observed these kinds of things happening among insects, among plants. Uh, but these uh, MIT theorists came up with the idea of new theory that I hear you guys talk about here sometimes. And uh, uh, Peter Sinke, who's uh, a researcher, who was trying to understand why it was that some organizations can transform into something new. And it seems like others just can't. No matter how many tools you give them, they just keep getting stuck. And what it all comes down to is that there's some people who know how and are willing to die and others who aren't. And there are cultures that are willing to die and there are others who aren't. And I don't mean, well, sometimes it does mean a literal death. I don't want to uh, exclude that as a possibility. There are little deaths that we encounter all the time. And they're often not what we think they are. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I think that, we, that, that can clue us into how much we are attached to uh, particular kinds of, of, of false life are when uh, we are oriented toward being right, looking good, being liked, being safe, and being comfortable. Those are the things that give us a clue that we might be holding on to something we need to die to. Now, we have very, very sneaky ways of maintaining those things that look like servanthood, but they're not. 
They can look like self-sacrifice, but they're not, because they're actually more about maintaining our own sense of rightness, or our own sense of comfort. So, I invite you to consider that, to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what that might look like for you particularly, because we humans are incredibly sneaky, and mine are very sophisticated. I can hide really well, and that's actually what I'm probably really good at too. A part of what helps us to break through this is the discipline of beholding. So, this is what Jesus asks of us in Luke 12, uh, verse uh, 24 through 32. So listen to his call to behold. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Other matters. I want you to think back to those five things I just listed. Uncomfortable. Being right, being light, looking good, being safe. Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so close the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into a furnace, how much more will he clothe you? Men of little faith, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying, for all these things the nations of this world are eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. There's a call to behold. It gives us the inspiration, and it's the first testimony. It's the testimony we need to hear and to observe in order to engage in our own process of surrender. This isn't easy, and it shouldn't be easy. If you think that your life is felt easy and goodness, you might be controlling too much. And you may have had enough privilege in life that you've been insulated from that experience of life of faith. But many of you, I'm guessing, as you reflect on your experience of life, you can definitely encounter times where you felt that vulnerability, and you might even feel that way right now. A few weeks ago, I was leading a retreat with a group of faith and work uh, people in San Francisco. These are very <laughs> movers and shakers in the world. Uh, they're very interesting people, very bright, very smart, and they've been on top of it in life for a really long time. And uh, as I'm sitting outside, and I'm in Sonoma County on the Russian River, it's beautiful, and I'm sitting outside, 
and I see something that I just want to absolutely reject it and say, no, that is not happening right now because it makes no sense to me. And what it was, was a caterpillar flying through the air. Um, do we have that image? I don't know if you have it or not, but put something like that. Except for that one, you can kind of see a little string that's connected. And so that one makes it less mysterious. But I'm telling you, this one was literally flying. Like, I could go like this over it, and I was not picking up a string to it. I was like, I don't even know how this makes any sense. So first I see this, this caterpillar flying, lands on my leg. I get a little stick, and I take it over to the point, and I put it away, and I just watch it for a while, and I'm just like, I don't even know quite what I saw there. But uh, that, was, that was interesting. So I go back to reading or journaling or whatever I'm doing. And then another one <laughs> comes flying through the air and lands on my leg again. And I'm like, what the heck is going on right now? How are, this thing doesn't have wings. I, I don't get how this works. It seems to defy the laws of physics, and I'm, I'm not sure if I buy it yet. So now two times observing the balloon caterpillar. So of course I had to Google it. And uh, see, like, when you Google flying caterpillars, it's, it, you just feel kind of silly. But, uh, but, but, but it, it was for real. It was for real. And so uh, I went to this lovely website that I, I was like, there, oh man, I could geek out on this, like, this website. It's just called askanaturalist.com. And so you can just ask them anything about things that you're observing the natural world that makes sense. So, so I start reading about this, this concept. They're called ballooning caterpillars. So some caterpillars make their own little balloon out of a little string of silk and they leave their food source and they jump all, I don't know what, get caught into this great, uh, this gigantic world and they have no control over where they land and they, they go for it. I, I, I don't even know what to say. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're just, they're flying through the air. And they have no control of where they're going. And two of them landed on my leg. <laughs> and, uh, and so this is, this is beholding right now. I'm, I'm just beholding this very strange thing. And I just start talking to God about it. But I, 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 this is so weird. And, uh, and, and I'm like, this, this seems like things that I don't even understand. Uh, caterpillars. <laughs> the caterpillar doesn't have the ability to reflect on how dangerous its, uh, its, uh, its choices were. <laughs> it doesn't have the ability to consider uh, whether it was safe, or whether it was looking good and being right, or it made the right decision at that moment. Uh, we have those abilities, and yet uh, we have them in a, at a level of overactivity that prevents us from really allowing ourselves to enter into the adventure of a balloon expedition. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, I do wonder if sometimes it looks like pick up your balloon and just jump. 
Jesus' cross was is a suffering experience. And don't get me wrong, balloon sounds like such a childlike, um, fun, kind of like up kind of experience. Uh, but but there is something about entering into that unknown that is simultaneously terrifying and absolutely invigorating and full of joy in a way that you never could have imagined. But it takes practice to experience the joy. The first time you encounter such unknowns, it, it could feel like your world is falling apart. When we enter into unknown emotional spaces, it feels like we're losing all control. When we step into, thing, into unknowns in our life, it's, it, it is so difficult to, uh, to be at peace in that because it's so contrary to everything those voices in our head tell us that we should, we should be doing. We don't have to balloon. God is not kicking us off our feet, but he's inviting us. We don't have to. We get to. We get to become like a child. And this takes us full circle back to where 1 John 1, 1, 3, 2, 4 go. is that it ends with joy. That, that, that movement from the lofty space of this, this abstract power that governs everything, this logos, this word of life, becomes a human and demonstrates what it looks like for a human to live in that way. And when we do it, we are invited into experiencing the fullness of joy, and our joy is made complete by inviting others to join us. So would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for receiving us just as we are. Your little flock that is so scared. Has functioned so often under the heavy yokes of shame and scarcity. Right now, you're in this quiet space. Would you bring to mind to anyone here there are ways that you want to expose some of those voices, some of the ways that those voices have taken control over the life of freedom that you designed us for. Lord, thank you that we don't have to fix this in our own strength. Table to take you in, to receive you, to 
receive your body and your blood and to receive that capacity for true human life. So Lord, we come to you. We bring you our belief. We bring you our unbelief. And we ask that you will fill us.